I want everyone to find themselves divine. No matter who you are, what your gender, race, sexuality, religion, ability, gosh, we all can find ourselves in the divine. And so obviously, I don't need everyone to go on a 400-mile walking pilgrimage to the Black Madonnas, but I need people to go on a journey for themselves to find their own sacredness that we can all start to actually treat each other as if we're sacred. Hey, everybody, Jen Hatmaker here, your host of the For the Love podcast. Welcome to the show. So we're in a series right now called The Love of Faith Shakers. And this is our third faith series that we've done. We really wanted to talk to powerful and like intelligent and thoughtful and faithful leaders of faith who are not inside the faith structures, right? They're shaking it up. They're pushing hard on old forms. They are finding flourishing in in different spaces with different communities. We have so much to learn. And so let's start here with today's guest. So I, you know, most of us have heard the phrase, at some point, God is a woman. Maybe you've come across thoughts and theology from others who have really mused about our creator using a wider lens, like scholars and theologians who have spent years and centuries, of course, looking into this idea of like the feminine divine. And so as can you imagine, that creates quite a swirl in the sort of evangelical Western Christian community. And not just that, I mean, even others, since most religions have had a very strong patriarchal bent since the beginning of time. They've been crafted and held together and governed by men. And so those in power tend to shape their deities as they want to see them, which looks a lot like them, right? You know, so back in the day, somehow Jesus, who's a Jew who lived in the Middle East, ends up being a Caucasian man with blue eyes and long brown hair, usually wearing like white robes. I don't know. Maybe that was the heart was right. I don't know about fashion, but crafted into a different image. It's interesting, though, viewing Jesus as a white man and God as father or as, you know, a man, period, emerging from the clouds, like with this stern disposition and this sort of ruling with an iron fist and this powerful, almost punitive approach to humanity generally serves one group of people in one gender, this idea, which makes it so painful and difficult for black and brown and female and LGBTQ plus communities to see themselves in this personification, not just see themselves, but feel safe with this God, right? To feel cherished, to feel protected, to feel included. So it is the work of a lifetime, honestly, to upend those images and ideas of God and Jesus that we've been shown, well, at least for me, my whole life. Because there's something about this certainty around that type of stern and strong and punitive God that maybe the certainty of it feels good. But I wonder, like, what if there's mystery? What if there's more mystery here than we've been taught, than we've been allowed to consider? What if God isn't something or someone we can personify to fit our view of him. Like what if one of the main things that the Bible tells us about God, that he is love, like that center part doesn't actually look like anything we can 
paint to suit our view, but really can only be defined in that he is representative of all the people that he created, just as love is for all, right? That is not an outlier idea. If that is the key message of how Jesus tried to get us to understand who God is and was that love was the center of it, then it stands to reason that every human person in creation has a place with that, that God is representative of the people, right? These are hard discussions and they break apart some notions that feel safe to a lot of us, but they're good and they're important because they expand our thoughts. They expand our, our beliefs or even just our curiosity to this idea, this possibility that God cannot just be defined in one way, right? Okay. This conversation today is like, woof. Like I had a whole interview kind of planned for this. But we got started and we just, everything that she was saying was so interesting and so provocative to me and, and so appealing that I just kept like digging down, like drilling down with her. And so, so to give us some insight toward moving beyond this narrow, what ends up being an abusive and oppressive view of God, we've got today, Dr. Christina Cleveland here. So Dr. Cleveland She's a social psychologist. She's a public theologian. She's an author and she's an activist. Christina founded the Center for Justice and Renewal, along with its sister organization, Sacred Folk, where she kind of provides this framework for people's spiritual imaginations. She's also, no big deal, an award-winning researcher, a former professor at Duke University's Divinity School. Her work has appeared in Essence in Christianity Today. She's done some amazing study around the patriarchal forces in Christianity and other religions, and then pokes holes, more than pokes holes. She kind of dismantles this practice of silencing the feminine side of God's intimate presence in our lives, simply to further patriarchal aims. Her new book that we're going to talk about at length is titled, God is a Black Woman. You see where we're going? It was published just a few weeks ago. So I want you to open your heart. I want you to open your mind. I want you to open your ears, dear listener. This is very liberating conversation. It is thought provoking. It is powerful. I felt very energized today talking to her and feeling the sense of like truth and wisdom and comfort, just kind of like settling in my bones as I listened to this powerful leader talk about the feminine divine. And so I'm excited for you to be here and to listen, like buckle in here and get ready for this incredible conversation with the absolutely delightful and wonderful and smart Dr. Christina Cleveland. Welcome so much to the show, Dr. Christina Cleveland. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you. It's a joy to be here and to connect. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I'm really interested in your work and your mind and your spirit. And I love the forms that you are pushing on. And I just can't wait to hear you talk about it. So before we kind of get into it, I have filled my listeners in already a little bit about who you are, but if you wouldn't mind for those of my listeners who are new to you and new to your work, can you sort of high level for us, 
who you are, where you are, and who your people are, and kind of just very generally what it is you do. Yeah, yeah. I'm Christina Cleveland. I live in the Boston area in a lovely little A-frame on a lake, and it's quiet, and I get to connect with nature all the time. Come on. (laughs) And yeah, I know. It's, It's a good life. It is. Mother, the mother is very close to me, the earth mother. My people are anyone who's spiritually of interest. Those are my people. So if you want to ask questions beyond what you've been taught to ask, ask questions beyond what seem moral to ask, I'm your person. I'm all about the spiritual liberation and finding the hope that we need to move forward. I love that. I'm so drawn to that. I I grew up in a religious construct where curiosity was seen as a threat and certainty was rewarded, of course. So that was the metric in which I measured faithfulness was how sure are you? Like how right are you getting it? Which of course was just also a function of how wrong is everybody else getting it? And so when I grew up, and matured and my faith began to evolve and take on new forms and new, it expanded. I came to just literally cherish and treasure spiritual curiosity. And so when you say that, I just, that draws me to you. And I know right away, this is going to be a safe conversation. We can just workshop all of our ideas. And I love that. Thank you for being that kind of leader in the world right up front. I just want to say that, that I wish there were more of you who held open a wider space for people to ask questions without fear or without shame or without immediately being kicked out of the club. Yeah. Or needing to have answers. Or even findings that definitive answer at the end of the question. Maybe that's not how it goes. Okay. Let's go back because you talk about how really, I guess, a crisis of faith, and I'd love to hear you talk about that, sent you on a walking pilgrimage across France. This is just so extra. It's just, I love it. I love this story. And then, of course, you recently published a book kind of discussing that journey and all that you've learned. And so can we start there? Can you tell us like the title of the book, how this began for you, what the crisis was, what the pilgrimage was, like Let's hear it. Yeah, yeah. So the book is called God is a Black Woman. And I still chuckle a little bit at the term crisis of faith, because that's a term that Harper, my publishing company, put onto the book. And I remember first hearing about it, you know, like last fall, you know, as the pre the pre publication work. And I just remember thinking, are we calling it a crisis of faith? Mm, I think there's still part of me. Well, there's still part of me that is white patriarchal religion. And I want to have already arrived. Like I never broke down. I always had it together. This journey that I'm on, it was planned. (laughs) I thought it through. I was never that person who was just falling apart when actually it was a crisis of faith. I did essentially fall apart. My whole world fell apart. And that's what led me on this journey. And so I think my world, I mean, my world's been falling apart since I was a little girl, as I've just awakened to how much white male God hated my black female body. And I saw that very early on as a five-year-old in vacation Bible school when my teacher called me a nigger and she was mad at me. And I knew right then, I was like, I don't know this word, (laughs) but I know it's bad. And I know it says something about my skin because that's what differentiates me from everyone else in this classroom because it was a predominantly it was an all-white church that we were at at that particular instance and so I was you know starting to question but then I little Christina sort of learned like you learned questions are not okay 
wondering is not okay. Certainty is faithfulness. And so I sort of silenced that wisdom in me, but it came back pretty loud and clear about 10 years ago with Trayvon Martin's death and just seeing, I was raised in this sort of like, I was doing work in a lot of white Christian spaces and seeing these people who were calling me their family, responding the way that they were, being unable to hold space for a different perspective, a Black perspective on what was happening. That was huge. And I started then really questioning the problem of white Jesus. Like, wait a second, they cannot hear me, even though their savior looks like me. Okay, we have a problem. And I was like pretty passionate about that for a few years, but mostly focusing on the race of Jesus, the, the, the problem of white Jesus's race. And I think part of that is because as a woman, I often have to choose, do I want to care about race or do I want to care about gender issues? Because as a Black woman, I kind of only get to show up as one or the other. A lot of white female spaces don't hear my Blackness. And a lot of like Black racial spaces don't hear my femaleness. And so I sort of had to choose. I just got focused on, you know, the Blackness of the problem of white Jesus, you know. It wasn't until Trump got elected, honestly, with the run-up to Trump's election in 2016, Trump was saying all these racist things, right? And of course, white Christians didn't have a problem with it, did not have a problem with it. And I, and I was not surprised because I'm like, I know these people, they're racist, they're xenophobic. Like, but when Trump started talking about white women, assaulting white women, I was like, okay, certainly these people are going to care about their precious white women. I mean, like white femininity in white church spaces is like a fruit of the spirit, you know, like it's so protected. It's so held dear. And when I saw that they just like, completely explained the way that his misogyny towards white women, I was like, okay, 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 okay. The problem is not just white Jesus. The problem is male Jesus. We have created this figment of the patriarchal imagination that all that is holy and sacred and good and pure is white and male. And everybody else is profane. And no one else, no one else's perspective matters. No one else's body matters. No one else gets to choose what they want for themselves. And that's when I was just like, okay, I have to start looking for images of God that are not white and male. <laughs> and that's what sent me on my journey. This like very urgent, like I have been taught to trust this God, to believe that this God is on my side, to believe that this God cares about my black and female body. And I'm just seeing evidence everywhere that this is not true. That's so right. in God we trust, he is not trustworthy. That's right. Ooh, but I was like a professor at Duke Divinity School. I'm speaking at all these Christian conferences, you know? So I'm like, like in this huge quandary. Oh my like, God, like the cognitive unraveling. Totally, yeah. yeah, yeah. So you're like, this is so urgent. And this, this requires such upheaval. I'm going to go to France and walk. Basically, yeah. Well, what happened? So how you got from here to yeah. here. Yeah. Right. So I, uh -huh. you know, at the end of 2016, you know, I'm looking for images of God that are different than white and male, the ones that we see everywhere. And I very quickly encountered the Black Madonna, very quickly. And the, for people who aren't familiar with her, because she's kind of this like rogue, like artsy version of Catholicism, <laughs> she's an image of the divine that is black and female and she's like a virgin mary so i encountered these mostly different images right like i ordered some books and I the minute i laid eyes on an image of a black madonna 
my entire body exhaled. Wow, and I realized I had been holding terror. I had been holding terror in my body as a Black woman because of how much I'd been a fugitive in this world where white patriarchal religion hates Black people and women's bodies, you know? And, you know, of course I was like deeply connected right away, but I really wanted to see them in person, these Black Madonnas, because I, as I did more work on how much white patriarchal religion has stolen from me as a Black woman, I realized I've been so disconnected from my body. That's what trauma does, right? You stop feeling everything's fine. I'm a strong black woman. I got it, you know? And also I was so, my relationship to the earth had been so antagonized between like slavery, between domestic service that my aunts and uncles and grandparents did. And then also just environmental racism. And so I wanted to be able to connect with my body, connect with the earth. Many, many black Madonnas are deeply connected to the earth too. Many of them are like found near like a magical spring or found in like a magical forest that those are their origin stories. And so I decided to walk to these so I could say, Hey, I walked three days and listened to my body and took 10,000 breaths and slept against trees in order to meet you and to show up full bodied, you know, just connected and get out of my head. And so, yeah, so I, I decided to go to central France because there's this region in central France that's, has like a thousand year old devotion, almost 2000 year old devotion to the black Madonna. And there are about 40 black Madonnas in one, one small area. And so I just like went there and never, don't speak French, never been there. Like don't know anything. Went by myself, not, not outdoorsy. Like, you know, like just, and I was like, I'm going to walk to as many of these as I can. I ended up walking to about 18 on that particular pilgrimage. And I walked over 400 miles in the middle of winter. In a mountain range. I didn't know that it was a mountain range until I got there. <laughs> this would be, I would do this. This would be my trip research. I would have like my flip-flops on. <laughs> totally. I mean, I'm looking yeah. at maps and I'm like, oh, it's real brown and green here. I don't know what that means. Let's just go, you know. And <laughs> oh my gosh, I love it. I love it so much. It's like, it's like November, December, you know, and I'm... They're all, they're all these Black Madonnas are in these ancient... Many of them are in these ancient mountain villages. Not sure why I didn't think I'd have to climb a mountain to get to the mountain village, but that didn't occur to me. <laughs> oh, man. Parts where I was definitely doing backcountry backpacking. And then there were parts where I was just walking on regular roads because some of them are in cities. And yeah, so, but I did walk. It was 400 miles. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> just even physically what that required of you. Talk about getting back in your body. Yeah. Well, especially after having had an eating disorder for most of my life. And so, you know, one of the chapters in my book that's about white male God is called God of Bulimia, where I just talk about how white patriarchal religion put me at war with my body because beauty is equated with purity in white male God's world. And, you know, we started fasting and praying for our future spouses when I was five. And so I learned as a five-year-old to starve myself for love. I could be pure enough to get the good gift of marriage that God was going to give me. And so I'm self-actualizing in marriage as a woman, as long as I'm pure enough and I'm pleasing God. (laughs) And so I had this like, you know, 30 year, essentially disordered eating pattern that really only began to heal when I connected with a black female version of God. And so I did on that on that particular journey get to encounter the Black Madonna that I call She Who Six Eyes Save Lives. 
and she's one of the black Madonnas that I encountered. And it's like to even be on a journey with someone with my history of disordered eating and to actually make it about the journey and not about walking all that much and it was about the spiritual journey. You know, it was a miracle for me to be able to say, I actually am here not to lose weight, not to look cute, not to do anything impressive, but to be present. And so actually I need to add more food. And actually it's not about losing weight. And actually, you know, the whole 400 mile walking pilgrimage, I added so much food because at my nutritionist advice, but I only lost two pounds the whole time. You know, like the whole point was to actually just be present. And if I compare that to when I was in this like growth, cycle this super sad cycle of starving and over exercising it's a miracle like it's a hundred percent miracle <laughs> I love that I love that piece of it I'm so interested I just have a million questions I'd love to hear you talk about a couple of moments when you were in France that were just so meaningful to you I'd love to hear like I saw this I heard this I felt this I experienced this this was something I I just like I just want to know everything. It's so you put your physical body in a place to discover a whole new way, a whole new side of God. It's so powerful. What were a couple of the moments that just cracked through for you? Yeah, I think my encounter with she who cherishes our hot mess was really is one that I just returned to over and over again. She's officially called Our Lady of the Stick and she's the Black Madonna of VC. France, but I call it she who cherishes our hot mess. I like one of the your things version. That, <laughs> oh yeah, I, I have nicknames for all of them. <laughs> one of the things that growing up in White Mill Broad's world taught me was that my need, my human, my humanity, my human need was disgusting, absolutely revolting. And so I was taught you have to be perfect. You can't just say, hey, I need help. You can't just say, hey, I'm breaking down here. And we see that even with the pandemic, right? I mean, it's the people who aren't able to pay to have their needs met in the pandemic that are just getting tossed aside by our society. And so I just remember I had just gone to visit two other Black Madonnas. And it was my first kind of longer walk in the, in the pilgrimage. And again, I'm not outdoorsy. I'm super indoorsy. So I'm out there and just like my friends who are, are outdoorsy were like, you should dress in layers. And I was like, yeah, I don't know what that is, whatever. So I was just out walking to these black mountains, like a 15 mile walk. At first, everything's great, but then it starts to rain. And I had like a little thin rain jacket in my backpack, but I was just like so focused on getting to the black Madonna's that I was like, ah, how much can that matter? And it's like, okay, yeah, actually a windbreaker matters. I've since learned. <laughs> but what happened is I got sick on that trip. And so as soon as I get home and I'm starting to cough, I'm just, my self-criticism just turns into a wildfire and it just starts consuming me. And it's like, Christina, you're so stupid. Why didn't you listen to your friends? Why didn't you put on that jacket? Now look, you're sick. You're only here for five weeks. You're going to miss this opportunity to check off all these black Madonnas on your list. And as I listen to my, just, just like, raging fire of self-criticism, which makes sense given this world that I've grown up in where a mistake is not okay. Being human is not okay. Getting sick is not okay. Having a learning curve is not okay. <laughs> you know, I realized that the deeper shame that was coming up was that I was ashamed of needing liberation. I was ashamed that white male God's perfectionism and self-criticism was still taunting me. 
I was ashamed that I had stayed on that plantation, that white Christian plantation for so long and let those people abuse me for so long. I was ashamed that it took me this long to find an image of God that related to my blackness and my, and my femaleness. And so I was just like, oh my gosh, like, I don't even know how to heal from this shame. I'm literally embarrassed that I need liberation <laughs> from this world that has held me captive. That day I was like, I have to go see Our Lady of the Six. Like, I have to go see She Who Cherishes Our Hot Mess because my, my mess is my offering to her. And so I got on the train. She's only like an hour train right away and only in like a 15 minute walk to the train station. And I just remember running to her altar and she's this like amazing, dark, she's super, super, super dark skinned. I think she's made of olive wood tree. She has this like huge, gorgeous fresco behind her of just like the cosmos. And I just remember running up to her altar and just grabbing her feet like a toddler, like just clinging to her. And in that moment, I just realized this is the one place where I can just be myself and I can just say, I don't know why I'm so hard on myself. I don't know why these voices of white patriarchy that I've tried to extinguish still come back. I don't know why, you know, just, and one of the things that's amazing about her is that during the French Revolution, she was stolen. And then like many of the people who were most marginalized in society were very devoted to her. So they actually tracked her body down, but they were only able to find her head. She was decapitated. And so they actually built her a new walnut body, walnut wood body, and then pieced her back together. And I was able to talk to her about that. Like I've been decapitated too by white patriarchy. I have such a hard time connecting my feelings with my over-educated, over-linear brain. Like this is part of the problem, but you were pieced back together. So I know you can piece me back together. And I also know that you know that this process of reweaving and reconnecting is not a linear process. It takes time. It's an art. And I just get to be present to that. It's okay that I'm still struggling to be free. You know, like every step in any direction is a step in the right direction. There's no one step forward, two steps back. Like, you know, it's just, and she understands that. You know, I was able to say, you understand that. You were decapitated yourself. Yeah, these like deep encounters. And I could say that, I mean, every single Black Madonna I visited, you know, I was able to bring a part of myself to what they offered, you know, and each one offered something different. So powerful. It's so powerful. (laughs) And seeing yourself, like seeing yourself up there and being like, oh my gosh, I'm sacred too. I've always wondered that. I've always, because I'm so, as a Black woman, I'm so far from this white Christ. Totally but I'm sacred too. My voice matters too. My story matters too. My feelings, my journey, my liberation, it matters too. It's all sacred. I started my writing career backwards. I began with books, then branched out to online writing and blogging, at which point I needed to build a beautiful, functional digital home for all those billions of words. I wanted it to be pretty, user-friendly, and very gen. So when the time came to establish a more robust website, one that would represent all the different facets of my life and career, I knew I could place it all in Kavatica's capable hands and Micah, 
the brains behind it all would help me find the way to represent the authentic me. Even if you don't know where to start, even if you don't know what questions to ask, Micah does. He will help you workshop your entire site and handle all the technical stuff, the design, the setup, the hosting, the security, all of it. They do it all. Kavatica makes simple, beautiful websites for authors, artists, and entrepreneurs so that what you are creating and putting forward for your audience is the absolute best version of you. So go to kavatica.co to get started on your new website today. And while you're there, fill out the let's talk form and add for the love in the promo code, and you will get $100 off your website. All right. So you guys time to do this. That's cavatico.co C-A-V-A-T-I-C-A dot C-O. I just got back from a trip to Nashville, which is always a good thing. And on this trip, I spent time with my friends at Able. You know, I've been collaborating with them on some pieces, clothing, jewelry, handbags. It's so fun. And you guys, like, I am not a style model person, okay? I need people to tell me what to do. But I know what I like to wear. And I love working with Able because this is an ethical fashion brand that's out here doing the most. Able commits to the protection and empowerment of women in the workforce and takes steps to end generational poverty by working with women in Ethiopia, Mexico, Peru, Nashville, and beyond. They're deeply devoted to quality, both in the products they make and in the quality of life they aim to provide. So if you follow me over on socials, you know I wear so much of their stuff on total repeat. It's on literally constant rotation for me. And spring is looking so bright over with Able, you guys. They have so many adorable new pieces and updated twists on classic staples out right now. So check them out for the cause and their incredible business practices, but y'all stay for the fashion. You can save 15% site-wide with my code Jen at livefashionable.com. That's Jen, J-E-N, at livefashionable.com. You've spent a lot of your time speaking about what, you know, white supremacy and racial reconciliation might look like inside the church in that capacity, in that context. I'm listening to you talk and, you know, for the millionth time, understanding how much white patriarchy harms and inhibits the flourishing of literally everybody, just everybody. And even though it's a power play from the power people, it's about position and privilege and power, it harms them too. We are all hamstrung by our refusal to reverse the bondage of white supremacy inside the church. It literally negates the whole operation. And so I just want to hear you talk a little bit about your hopes, your dreams for what this could look like inside the body of Christ, inside a community of faith, inside, I mean, there's so many problematic things around organized religion that it's hard to unravel because that's just, the whole system is just, there's such inequity just baked into it that it's hard to parse out actually. I'm interested in your vision for that structure because I love your vision for this internal knowing and wisdom and connection with God. What do you see? What do you hope? What do you think is non-redeemable and what do you think is? 
Yeah, yeah. I'm like, I, I love fire and I, the energies that I work with are fiery energies. I think the hardest thing when I was a professor of reconciliation at Duke, like I just remember telling my students, like the hard thing about reconciliation work is knowing when to just walk away. Because there's something inherently hopeful about reconciliation, but sometimes you need to just say like, this is rotten. And, and I think that's how I understand the American church. Like just inherently rotten at this point. It's so intertwined with white male God. It's so intertwined with power. The history, the DNA of white supremacy and patriarchy is so baked in that I just I don't see I don't see hope in that space. I see hope in lots of other spaces, but not in that space. And as someone who was on the front lines kind of like doing that work for years and years and years, I have lots of data. <laughs> I've been inside those conversations where people are saying one thing and doing something else, you know, people with a lot of power in those spaces. And so I think the way forward for me is a burn it down and then burn something new. This is not a structure that can be reformed because they're theologically incapable of seeing my sacredness because of their attachment to the white Christ. I don't think you're wrong. It's just, it's just not possible. Yeah. So, but one of the things that I love is starting to see matriarchal spiritual communities coming together. And matriarchy is not just the inversion of patriarchy. It doesn't just mean women are in charge. What it is, is it's a a community that's based on need and centered around need, as opposed to centered around hierarchy and what you can produce. And so I'm starting to see these little, and I think, you know, they're subversive. They're not institutionalized. They're small communities. It's just people of all genders coming together and saying, we actually want to be molded and formed by the divine feminine, which is an imminent and a power with, not power over. And a, and a let's, let's talk about what flourishing means for all of us, particularly the people who are most oppressed in our spaces. Let's let that be the standard. So they flourishing for them means flourishing for all of us. That's right. Yeah, you start to see that. You start to see these little teeny tiny micro communities. And I think that's the that's the mustard seed, right? I mean, that's the spark that we need. We don't need money and platform and power. Like those are white patriarchal ways of evaluating success. We actually just need a handful of people who are say, who are willing to say, let's do it a different way. And also, let's exorcise the white male God who's lived and breathed within us. And so much of my journey has been, how do I get this out of me? Because I have been formed by this, even though I'm a Black woman, right? Like, there's a point in my book where I call myself white male God in blackface. Because I realize my actions, my thoughts, my emotions, my understanding of leadership, you know, these are all things that are white patriarchal and they're just showing up in my black female body. So a lot of it, it is this inner work so that then we can, it's like, I have to be comfortable with my own need before I can participate in a community that's centered on me. Cause if I'm disgusted with myself, I'm going to be disgusted by you. That's right. And I think that's the issue with the like Christian church in America is it's all, it's run by all these white men who hate themselves. And they're teaching us to hate ourselves because the body is bad and it can't be trusted and you can't listen to it and you need to whip it into shape. And mm-hmm. it's a singular message I grew up in yep. and it worked. Same here. 
It worked. It did. I was real good at whipping myself into shape. <laughs> Ma'am, same. I got an A plus in good white girl Christianity. An A plus until it just broke my heart. And it broke our community. And it broke people. And I'm like, I talk a lot about, for me personally, the sort of internal cognitive dissonance that just grew. It started small and then it grew into an untenable situation in which I'm thinking about those old words that Jesus said, because I couldn't figure out how to parse it out. You know, everybody uses the Bible however they want to, and you can, it's not hard. You, you can piecemeal, you can take things out of con. It's easy. And, and I was thinking about those old words about just like, look to the fruit that just this plain story about when, when things are confusing and they've been too intertwined with power and, and, and powerful perspective, look to the, like, a good tree is going to have good fruit and a bad tree is going to have bad fruit. It's pretty simple. The fruit doesn't lie. And so there was such bad fruit, so much bad fruit. And it wasn't like one bad apple. It was not uh, one bad apple. It the was whole tree is rotten. The tree. Mm-hmm. And I just, the tree is disease. Yep. Rotten. And to your point, then there's this other tree over here, this subversive tree, if you will, where there are, new perspectives and the power is not centralized and it's, it's a need-based. And of course that tree by this group is called bad. This is a bad tree. This is untrustworthy. This is evil. This is heretical. And I thought, well, they said it, so it must be true. But the fruit over here was good. Like, and not one good apple, a ton of the fruit was undeniably good. And I'm like, how are these trees getting it? This doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. And by that point, you've been so gaslit that you couldn't trust your inner spiritual authority. It took years. So you're like, so you're kind of like, okay, I see, I, I see what I see, but now I can't trust what I see because no. they've told me not to trust what I see. And that's so right. Like, <laughs> that's like, right. Yeah. Yeah. This is just it's some like, deceptive game that my exactly. wicked brain and heart is playing well, against. Your, your wicked and female brain. Oh, listen, don't think I don't know that score. Right. And that's hysterical, emotional. Exactly. Yes. And then of course the punishment for the defection is fierce. It's severe. It is, you are punished for that. And I was, and I'm sure you were. It's a spectacle. They make a spectacle of you because if you're, if you have any sort of power as a woman and then you no longer can be controlled by them, then all of a sudden they have to wipe you out because they have to show to all the other women, this is what happens. I mean, it's basically like the woman who had been accused of adultery. Like they literally tried to lynch her in front of Jesus. You know, it's like that. It's like, oh, she's actually making her own choices. Let's kill her. I want to hear you talk about something here because in my experience, having been like cut off from all belonging, and all favor. I had favor as long as I was doing the right thing and saying the right words, which I knew I grew up in them. I knew the script. I was very, very, very accomplished at like playing my intended role. But when I did it and broke from it, of course, and predictably the men came hard. The men were ruthless and brutal and vicious, but it was the, the women cut me to the quick. And so I'd like to hear you talk about how that, that system works so that women are complicit in their own bondage and complicit in the, the breaking down, the ostracization of, of another woman 
who pushes against it because that was crazy. Yeah. And I can relate to that on an intersectional level in the sense that as soon as I started talking about God as a black woman, the two groups that came for me the hardest were white men, which is predictable and black women actually. And so it's kind of, it's like, it's just adding another layer to what you experience. And I think part of it has to do with the fact that we're all taught that faithfulness means clinging to what you believe and never deviating from that. And so I actually don't think that a lot of black women hate the idea of God as a black woman, (laughs) but they don't have a lot of spiritual tools to be part of that conversation with curiosity in part because of, and this would be relatively true for white women too, because of their lack of power in those spaces, right? The way to maintain belonging is to toe the party line. And because they're already disenfranchised in those spaces, if they even ventured into this line of questioning that you or I might be going down, they have so much more to lose than you or I because they have even less power in those spaces. Because if you have any platform, if you have leadership standing as a woman, you have a little bit more agency, you know? And, and so I think a lot of people are afraid, what will happen to me in my home, in my Bible study, in my school that my kids go to or whatever, if I start to do that? And so I think a lot of women want to be curious, but don't have the tools or have been taught. They've been taught that faithfulness looks different. Yeah. It's really painful though. Yeah. I, yeah. I I remember, I mean, I, that would have been me at a certain point feeling threatened, I think, and a little jealous, but not knowing what to do with that feeling like there she goes, you know, she's, she's going on her way and I kind of want to be her and I kind of hate her. I don't know which way. And I think people feel betrayed too. I think people, I think women and in my case, black women, feel betrayed because you were their person. You were out there advocating in that space for them. You were, you know, you were the one who did have a voice. And then, and sometimes people feel left, you know? And so for me as a black woman, I often use the language of the plantation, right? It's like, sometimes you have to leave the plantation and leave people behind that you love and care about. And they actually might be mad at you for leaving them because they were depending on you to protect them. But at some point we have to decide that our freedom is more important than faithfulness to a lie. And Harriet Tubman got free and then came back for people, you know, but it's like, I have to get free. I'm not, I, I'm not going to leave you hanging per se, but I have to get free because I, I can't lead you to freedom if I don't know how to get to freedom. <laughs> That's a great example. You know? I'd like to hear Christina, you talk about, because this is, for you, relatively recent. I mean, 2016 was just a minute ago. Like five years we've ago. all been Six in this quagmire yeah. since that year. Uh, just an absolute free fall is how it feels to me. An, an absolute free fall. I mean, of course, all of our history was leading to this. Led up to this, yeah. Mm-hmm. All of it. I mean, it's not, it's not new. It's not new, of course. But since then, it was just such a break. And so this sort of discovery process for you and this this liberation work that you've done internally, how has this affected you? Like, how has it affected your work? How has your community responded? What about your family? Like, because you're a real person embedded in a real life. And then you kind of had a pretty massive evolution here. And so what does that look like for you practically? What was the cost? What was the reward? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, prior to this, I was basically like, 
everybody's favorite little Christian mascot. And I was invited to speak on every stage and every boardroom conversation. And then I would say that was very true in my family too, you know, kind of propped up. I think there's a reason why people don't leave plantations because it's really, really, really hard. It's really, really, really hard. You have to find an entirely new way of life, both economically, linguistically, spiritually. So I, you know, I left a lot of spaces that I had been in and I had to find new spiritual spaces to be in. And I think there's a, there was a two or three year period where I didn't know it was just completely a bit, you know, like I didn't, I didn't really have anything to cling to. I just knew I don't want that. And that's a very uncomfortable space when you've been taught to value certainty over anything else. And so I think there's a lot of people who initially leave, but then go back. But the thing about like the Christian world in America, at least, is it's so all consuming. So your friendships are tied up in it. Your income is tied up in it. Your understanding of what purity is, is tied up in it. Part of the question is like, what do I believe? But then also part of the question is like, who's with me? And, and then also, how am I going to make a living? Because at the time I was kind of this like little evangelical darling mascot person. And so I was making a lot of money speaking. And I had a job at a seminary that at Divinity School, which is like a fairly conservative seminary. Like people want you to believe what they believe about Christianity there. Since then I've left that job <laughs> because I needed to. I that it was a plantation to me. It was one of the many plantations I had to escape. All of my speaking engagements in the Christian world just dried up, you know, like just completely gone. My, my social media following was modest to begin with. And it just completely fell apart. Like just like tens of thousands of people just leaving many of them leaving sweet little love notes to me as they, as they leave. I'm familiar. <laughs> I know about those. Lots, lots of hate mail, lots of death threats, you know, all yeah. that stuff. I, I um, so do. I so do. Yep. Yep. I'm sure you get it yet. Yeah. So there was this like very practical, like I don't have community. I'm no longer a favored family member. People who used to come to me for advice are calling me a witch. Now I proudly sort of inherit that because I'm mm-hmm. yeah, or, or claim that. So I think it's, it's but at so the time painful. you're like, what are you talking about? It's so like, painful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's so hurtful. Right. Yeah. Yes. It's so hurtful. Yeah. And then also, you know, again, it's like, what do I believe as someone who has been a believer for so long, right? In scare quotes, a believer, having a belief felt so important to me. Now, having experience with the divine feels important to me. But back then, I was like, but I have to have, well, what's my new creed? <laughs> you know what I mean? Totally. Like, I reject that creed, but what's my new one, you know? And part of this is building, building questions from other people, you know? So here's the thing, like, obviously, all of that's extremely hard. However. Oh, it's so worth it. (laughs) Because, 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 because this journey helped me to find myself in the divine. And I was finally home. Oh my gosh, God is a black woman. She gets it. She sees me. She feels me. She walks with me. She gets it. And also, if God is a black woman, it's handled. For the first time in my life, I can actually trust that someone has my back. Someone who actually is trustworthy has my back. And so I would walk off these plantations into the unknown and I would channel Harriet Tubman and I'd be like, Harriet Tubman didn't know what life was going to be like off the plantation. Everything she knew was the plantation. 
everything she had been taught was stay on this plantation and just try to survive on this plantation. She didn't know the language. She didn't know the geography. She didn't know how she was going to make a living. She didn't have transferable skills. She didn't know anything. She didn't have papers. And so I was just like, I'm walking off this plantation. Okay, maybe I'm walking in this direction. I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose income. I'm going to lose health insurance. I'm going to lose friends. I'm going to lose my certainty in my salvation. Scare quotes again (laughs) for people listening. However, if God is a black woman, I know that she has got my back. I don't know how. I don't know when. I don't know where. But there's no way that she wants my sacred black female self on this plantation. And she's going to support any effort I make to get off this plantation. It'll be okay. Somehow it will be okay. And I remember Harriet Tubman, you know, she used to tell in recent escapees, just focus on the North Star. Just keep your eye on the North Star. And I was like, you know what? These black Madonnas, they're my North Star. Let me just keep my eye on them. She who cherishes our hot mess has got me. She who sticks thighs, save lives has got me. Our lady of the side eye has got me. She's been saying not today colonizers since the 1100s. Okay. So she's got me. She gets me. And let's just keep moving. Just one more step, one more step. And it's opened up all this space, but not only have I like been able to dust white patriarchal religion off my feet and encounter a sacred way of being in the world that actually feels abundant to me that actually includes people it doesn't cut people out but I've also been able to find work that matters to me and is good for my black female body I mean I was at Duke and it was killing me my digestive system literally shut down and my therapist was like it's because your work is indigestible your life at Duke is indigestible and I now have rhythms of work that are actually good for my black female body it's taken time, but I've developed kinship friendships. And it's like 95% of those people that were my friends, my little friends in the Christian world, they did not have my back. They could not see me. And no, I'm not, I'm not denigrating them, but they literally do not have a spiritual imagination to see my sacredness. No, I get it. You're right. So it's like, you know what? It's like, I'm finally moving into relationships with people who actually can see me. It's a smaller group of people, (laughs) but it's deeper. Everything you just said is so comforting. It's powerful and it's comforting. I'm just, I'm thinking about people listening who can't even fathom any version of God on their side, any version of God who has their back. It's just so, God was terrifying. My God was terrifying. And arbitrary and abusive and and confusing and punishing and punitive petulant. Oh yes. And finicky, like hard to figure like a finicky God. And so this it's beautiful and it's true. Like it's just true. It rings true into my bones. It's a new year, beloveds. We made it to 2022. This is a time where some of us may set resolutions or maybe intentions or words for our year. It's a great time to really reflect on where we need to just pull some different levers in our lives. This is why I'm also just so excited to introduce you to the Me Course series, which is a series that I have put out with my incredible team. Our mission here is simple. 
This is inspirational, educational, and actionable content, as I like to say, for the rest of us. It's not heady graduate level work here, okay? But it is what we all need from finance to building better habits to cultivating simplicity in the name of wellness and more. These are some of the pillars where I personally have seen the most life change in myself and in others. And so with me course, we are telling you what actually does work. And I do it with some friends, friends who are experts in their respective fields, and they talk you through it too. We've really distilled it all down to the best of the best, a true highlight reel of everything you need to know in real life and how to make it work for you without you needing to commit hours upon hours of your time, which you don't have. Here's what you can expect. Four 15-ish minute sessions, and that's it. But also, as you will see, that is enough. They are packed and condensed without tons of fluff. We also have a whole library of bonus resources to explore and implement and remind you of what you learned. You get it all. Let's start learning together and be here for our lives in this way. So register now at mecourse.org and use the code for the love to save $10 off already discounted prices. This is the best deal. I can't wait. Mecourse.org. Join us. What's your hope? I mean, first of all, God is a black woman. You know, you put that title just right on a shelf. You know, (laughs) it is provocative. Like you are like, I'm going to go ahead and make a point just with the title. Let's start there. The cover alone is like a whole service series. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I have it. Um, Thank you for sending it to me. What are you hoping that your reader walks away with? Like you put your heart on the page. And so what's your like deepest hope for this impact here? And and I, even that is patriarchal language. Like, what do you want your impact to be? But I mean it in a more visceral level. Like, yeah, yeah. How do I want? I want to awaken people's spiritual imagination, right? So that's like another way of someone I don't know recently posted on social media a black a black guy who's been who's reading the book right now said I'm I'm only part way through it, but freedom oozes from this woman in a way that makes you want to pay the price to get some for yourself. Whoa, I have goosebumps. Yeah. Wow. And so that's my hope. Boy, that's what my hope is that people read this book and feel so invited into my liberation story that they realize that it's attainable for them too. And yes, there is a price to be paid, but it's worth it. And I share the ups and downs of it and the trauma of it. And I also, but I also share the fruit of it you know, the fragrant liberation of it. And so, yeah, I I want, I want everyone to find themselves divine, no matter who you are, what your gender, race, sexuality, religion, ability, gosh, we all can find ourselves in the divine. And so obviously I don't need everyone to go on a 400 mile walking pilgrimage to the black Madonnas, but I need people to go on a journey for themselves to find their own sacredness that we can all start to actually treat each other as if we're sacred. That's beautiful. Right. The tendrils of that effect, it would change everything. Oh yeah. Yeah. And if we had a world where like all women and all black people were truly sacred, that would dismantle literally every system that harms us. That's right. 
that would mean the whole earth would flourish. Yeah. It always feels so self-defeating that patriarchy and racism, all the isms are so stubborn because it's, it would truly be the liberation of earth if everybody was valued as divine. It'd be the liberation of the whole earth. Even the men, even the white men, like it would be for their flourishing too. And so it's just being our own jailer, but that system's not coming down. I mean, it will not hand over its keys. So it's going to be this slow work one-on-one, one person at a time, who's willing to go on that metaphorical walk and find it and then live it and then share it. That's a ground up. It'll never come top down. Never. No. And, but I, I also say, don't sleep, don't sleep on the sacred black feminine though. You know, like I think you know, a wildfire starts small, you know, it's that mustard seed. Like, yes, it will be ground up. Absolutely. Like the systems of domination are never going to be partners in this, but man, do not underestimate the power that can come from one person. I'm not saying you are, but just, I'm, I'm almost saying it for myself. Like don't sleep on the black Madonna. Don't sleep on sacred black femininity. <laughs> like, yeah, it's so magnetic. it will come for you. Yeah, it's it's so powerful. It's so subversive. It's so, and the more we get in touch with that, and that's why I mean that's part of the reason why I love the metaphor of God as a black woman because I think every every human being, regardless of your race or gender, needs to be transformed by sacred blackness and needs to be transformed by sacred femininity. That awakens in us this like wise fire in our bodies, you know, and it's like, we all need it. It's there's healing to be done. And then it's like, yeah, there's so much, there's so much poetry and like liberating poetry in that, that we can just like slide into, just slide into those verses and just get into it, you know? And it's like, who knows what can happen? Who knows what can be built? Who knows what can be transformed? That's right. There's so much hope, even in a hopeless world. Yes. No, there (laughs) is. There is. I'm so committed to that idea. I am. I'm committed to it. I just believe in the power of freedom and it's contagious. And any sort of movement that just rolls forward, setting people free can never be underestimated. I don't care how small it starts. And so I am so proud of you and so grateful for your work. And this matters. And this is life changing stuff, which ends up being relationship changing stuff, family changing stuff, community changing stuff, and ultimately they'll come for the systems. So this is really good work that you're putting your hand to. And I'm grateful that you took the loss on the front end so that this is what can now be a part of your story and a part of your leadership because you're such a powerful leader. And I want to ask you one last question. And this is a question that I ask everybody on the show. And I want you to answer this however you want. Like this is a Barbara Brown Taylor question. And so you can, it can be a, however you said what you want, what's saving your life right now? That's such a beautiful question. Isn't it? Sometimes people say things like pickles. Sometimes they say (laughs) things like (laughs) black Madonna. Like we get the whole gamut. Yes. Yes. I'll say, I'll say what's saving my life right now is, my connection to the earth. I was reading a book earlier this year that talked about how the early people understood the earth as the mother of all, right? The divine feminine and how we've confused the modern day 
like the Roman word for mother of God with matter, like things. And the more we connect to the earth, the more things will have less of a grab on us, you know? And that has just been like really transforming me as I think about how I spend money and like how I accumulate things. And so that feels life-saving right now. What does that look like for you? Like, what's your favorite way to connect with earth? Do you have a certain, like, this is my, this is where I feel it the most. Cause there's so much, of course. But. Yeah. I mean, it helps that I live in the woods and so I'm does. able to walk On in the woods lake. every single day. Yeah. Yeah. So that helps. But yeah. No, just going outside and breathing in the air and stopping and pausing. Just something simple. Yeah. Okay. Listen, you said a lot of important things to me over the course of this interview, but this is up there. As we finish here, can you just tell my listeners like the best place to find you and to follow you and to like sort of begin to take in your work? Yeah. So my book, God is a Black Woman, easy to remember everywhere, all over the world. So do that. And then also my website is christinacleveland.com. As long as you spell Christina right, you should be able to get there. And uh, we're actually starting a virtual Black Madonna pilgrimage where we're going to go visit all the Black Madonnas in my book and take time being transformed and connecting with them. So get on my newsletter. And we'll keep you updated about that. Is that yeah. available for anybody who wants to take this? Anybody journey? who wants to take the journey, anybody who wants mm. to get free, anybody, any spiritually adventurous person. I will be love doing that. It. It'll be super fun. Yeah. 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 I love that so. so much. Okay. Everybody listening, I'll have all this rounded up for you. Like I will put all these links in one place so you don't have to track it all down. A lot of women are ready for this. They're ready. Yeah, I believe. Yeah, they're ready to walk and out of the a lot of people. Prison. A lot of and people. Men. Men and non-binary people too. Yep. You're right. Lots of You're people. Right. Everybody mm-hmm. in. Everybody in. It's an all hands uh-huh. on deck situation. Yes. And everyone's welcome. That's so good. Thanks for being on today. Thank you I'm for having so me. I knew I was gonna love this conversation and I was right. And my brain is buzzing. My brain is buzzing, buzzing. And so I really am grateful for you and excited to point my community to you as somebody who's so worth listening to and worthy of following. Like this is incredible leadership and it's going to set people free. So yay you. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Okay. Thank you, Christina. This is the kind of stuff that I, I grabbed onto the tail of a few years ago and sort of pulled me toward freedom. The initial questioning of systems in which the same people were always at the top at the expense of people who were always at the bottom. None of that made sense to me. Bad fruit. And so I welcome your spiritual curiosity and I hope that it was peaked today that go follow Christina, go see her work, take in more. We scratched the surface here, go buy her book and let your heart be moved toward this. Can you imagine the idea? Just this idea that she said so beautifully and just something settled in me when she said it, which is God has your back, right? This feminine divine has your back. What a comfort. I mean, what a good North star to use her words. And so there's more. If you'll go to jenhatmaker.com under the podcast tab, 
I'll have this episode and I'll have all the show notes and I will have all of these links. Okay. And so it'd be kind of a one place where you can go centralize and get everything you want to get. Some of you are going to want to take that virtual pilgrimage with her. I'll link to her website and you can get more information. So let's keep going. More in this space series is coming. This is the kind of stuff we're pressing on. Don't be afraid of it. Like, don't be afraid. It's okay. This is, this is what curiosity looks like, right? This is, this is what it looks like to welcome in some mystery and consider perspectives that maybe you've never heard before, knowing that however you consider God and divinity, our little questions from our human hearts are not going to be enough to rock him off his perch, rock her off her perch, right? There is room and space for our questions and for us to expand our notion of how the divine sees us and works in the world. Don't miss anybody in this series. If you have, go back and pick them up. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, go do it. That way you will never miss one and they will be just right there ready for you. Also, you know that I have a YouTube channel where you can watch us talk. You can watch the conversation, which is sometimes such a fun way to take in these discussions because you get to see our dynamics and you get to see my guest face and see us interact with each other in a way that sometimes audio misses. And so if you've never done it, just go find my channel on YouTube. All my interviews are over there visually recorded too. All right, guys, I'm glad you're here and I'll see you next week.